Good morning, everybody. You guys ready for the word? Take your Bibles, 1 Chronicles chapter 12. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. I want to talk to you on the topic this morning, a shift to revival. I know, I know. Some of you say, well, wait a minute, didn't we already have Asbury? Or I mean, or what happened to Asbury? Let me just tell you something. Asbury was a preview to a coming attraction. Come on, somebody. I just got back from Colorado Springs, and uh, I was with my friend Mario Murillo, and uh, we saw 20,000 people come in four days, hundreds and hundreds saved, hundreds and hundreds healed. In fact, last night, I saw one of the most dramatic conversions I've ever seen in this church. There was a young man who came forward. He was tatted on his head and his face, on his neck, all throughout his body. And I came down and I said, what is it you need from God? And he kept telling me all the evil things he had done. And I looked at him, I said, I hear all the evil things you have done, but let me just tell you something. Jesus Christ is love. And not, not only does he love, he can't do anything other than love because he is love. And so he said, I want you to know he loves you. And here was his story. He had just gotten out of prison. He would just gotten out of Satanism. And he bowed and he gave his heart to Jesus Christ right here in this. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you there is a Jesus revolution that is taking place in the United States of America. All right. Uh, before I just break the word to you, let me launch into this with a story. Some time back, Judy and I were pastoring our first church, and we were going through a grueling stint of ministry. I was putting in these 80-hour weeks, and I mean, I was probably working more by might and power than by my spirit, save the Lord, but nevertheless, we were working really hard, and I was exhausted. And so we decided to take a little mini vacation. We took a respite, and we went to Dallas, Texas. And there we had some newfound friends that wanted to show us a good time, and so they took us to one of their favorite restaurants called the Magic Time Machine. This is a strange restaurant. <laughs> All the waiters and waitresses are dressed up like fictional characters. So you walk through the door and there's Indiana Jones and Bugs Bunny and Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman, they're all there. Guess who waited on our table? The devil. And the guy I'm with said, oh, Ron, if I would have known the devil was going to wait on us, I would have never brought you here. I said, Bill, that's okay. I've been looking for a face-to-face -face encounter with the devil all day long. <laughs> so you've got to see this guy. He's got the garb on. He's got, he's got the red outfit and the horn the pitchfork and the tail and the cape in the back, you know. He's all in dread. And he kind of saunters up to the table and he flicks that cape open in his vilest voice. He said, hi, I'm the devil. And I said, hi, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. <laughs> And he said, you what? I said, I think you heard me. And so he's kind of keeping a wary eye on me, and he goes, and he gets the menus, and he takes our orders, and he comes back and says, now, follow me to the salad bar. I said, no, I don't follow the devil anywhere. I said, you can follow me. He said, are you a preacher and or something? I said, yeah, and or something. And listen, all night long, I talked to the devil about Jesus. <laughs> I was walking out of the restaurant, and I put my foot into the parking lot, and the Holy Spirit said to me, son, that's the same way I want you to treat the devil in real life. It's time for the body of Christ to stop being intimidated and start being the intimidators. 
That sounds real good in here. <laughs> but how many you know there's a real devil out there? And the last stat I read was 75% of believers who believe in truth are afraid to stand up for it for fear of being canceled or persecuted. I want to tell you, God is raising up truth tellers in this time to speak into the culture in which we're living. Come on, can I get an amen in this place? Now, let me tell you why this is important. I want to piggyback onto this with another story. A while back, and this probably all the way back when Pastor Billy Joe was pastor in the church, I awakened very early on a Sunday morning, too early to get ready for church, so I took my Bible, went into the living room, sat down in what was at that time my favorite reading chair, and to open the Bible to read before I went to church, and I had the TV on in kind of a background noise, but I really wasn't listening to it. In almost a serendipitous moment, I was captivated by the words that were coming off the screen, and it was Jensen Franklin. He was talking about Bible-based believers. He began to throw out stats. I want to put them up on the screen, if you can see them right there. Elder generation, <clears throat> basically retirees that are saying 65% Bible-based believers. Boomers, my generation, 35% Bible-based believers. Generation X, why were they called Generation X? Because <clears throat> the X stood for nothing. There was no distinguishing characteristics about them. Look at that generation. Look what was in with with Generation X, long hair, short hair, no hair, dreadlocks, no locks, may locks. Come on, how many of us all in? 17% Bible-based believers. Millennials, 4% Bible-based believers. Generation Z, 4% biblical worldview. And when he was spewing those statements, he made this statement. He said, we are in jeopardy of losing a generation. And when he said that, it just angered me, and I took the remote, and I flicked off the TV, and I was standing in my living room angry over what had transpired to the youth culture in this nation. All of a sudden, God spoke to me. He said these words, son, I'm not going to lose a generation. I'm going to raise a generation up. Now, why is that important? I want you to see this stat. Put it up on the screen. This is the first generation since 1937 that less than 50% of people identify with a church or a synagogue in the United States of America. We are in jeopardy of becoming a minority. And brother, what we don't need, <clears throat> excuse me, what we don't need this morning is a, rendi a new rendition of the Doobie Brothers, Jesus is just all right with me, you know, and, and just kind of a TED talk with technology. Brother, we need a word from God. We need a shift in the body of Christ. Now, last October, I wrote the book called Shift, Repositioning God's People for Revival. And I became fascinated by this word. So let me throw it up on the screen. Here's what shift means. It means to change, to exchange, to transfer position or to reposition, to turn around or turn into something new, to change position, direction, or tendency. Everybody look at me for a second. Here's my question to you this morning. Does the church in America need a shift in the body of Christ? Unequivocally, absolutely yes. And here's the reason why. We are now living in undoubtedly a pluralistic, postmodern, post-church age. And these things are just philosophical terminology, but if you don't understand them, you don't understand why things are being colored the way they are today in our belief system. So what's pluralism? 
Pluralism is just the idea, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe something, that all beliefs kind of end up in the same place. You know, let me just say something. It's not compatible with Christianity. Here's why. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In the Greek, it's written in the emphatic. It says, I am the one and only way. I am the one and only truth. I am the one and only life. And he said, no one absolutely can come to the Father except by me. Therefore, pluralism is not the, the, the idea for the age. Secondly, postmodernism. So in premodernism, <clears throat> the idea for, for culture came from the Bible. In modernism, the idea for culture came from science and reason. They kind of took a look at truth and came to a consensus truth or an objective truth. Objective truth is just a truth that is free from opinion or preference. But in postmodernism, the truth about truth is there is no truth. In other words, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. There are truths not true. And I want to tell you something. The problem with that is it violates the law of non-contradiction. So the law of non-contradiction says that you can't have two statements, differing statements, that both are truth at the same time in the same place. So if I say to you, <clears throat> a table is a rectangle, and you say the table is a triangle, both of those statements cannot be true. In other words, <clears throat> either I'm right, you're right, or we're both wrong, but they're not all true. But this is the basis by which we make decisions. Now, we make decisions based on a preference or what I feel. And that's why you can have somebody who's standing before the United States Congress as a Supreme Court nominee for a justice, and they cannot define a woman. Though, though if you were to just take a blood sample, if you've got an XX chromosome, you are a woman. If you have an XY chromosome, you are a man. Now, I'm not trying to be disparaging towards somebody. What I'm trying to do is to make a point as to how truth is derived. So in Christianity, it, here's, here's what's important. The way of Jesus is not true because it works. It works because it's true. And the problem that we are facing <clears throat> excuse me, in this country is that we no longer believe in change, so we normalize our conditions. And I'm here to tell you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is transformative. So historically, in times like these, it's when we need revival. But revival is bantered around so much until we no longer know what it means. So let me tell you what it is by, <clears throat> first of all, telling you what it's not. Revival is not a four-day meeting with a guest speaker. Revival is not a conference with the most notable speakers in the world. Those things are important. We need those things. But they are not revival. So let me tell you what revival is. Four things. Put them up on the screen. <clears throat> Number one, <clears throat> excuse me, it is a reinvigoration of truth and power and the presence of God. All three of those things are important. We need truth, <clears throat> excuse me, in the body of Christ. How many of you know it's what Francis Schaeffer called true truth? We need power. Listen to me. Signs and wonders are no longer optional in the body of Christ. We need to have the power of God to endorse the words in which we're saying. And presence. We need the presence of Jesus Christ to show up to the fact that we are aware that he's here. The difference between Christianity and every other religion on the face of the earth is our founder shows up to every meeting. Yeah. Secondly, 
It is a revitalization for the church, for a divine effect on a wayward culture. When culture goes away from biblical standards, revival brings it back. Thirdly, it is marshalling forces fatal to the kingdom of darkness. Fourthly, it is the reestablishment of the kingdom of God. So revival begins in an awakening, but it ends in a movement, and that movement is the kingdom of God. Then fifthly, it is a resuscitation of life or to bring back to life. It is a revitality. It is a fresh breath. Now, when I wrote Shift last October, I did an interview on TBN. And in the middle of that interview, <clears throat> Tom Newman looks at me and he asks <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of different questions. But the main question he asked me was this, Ron, what time is it? <clears throat> so I want to examine that today, right now. I want to examine the time that it is. So take a look here at 1 Chronicles chapter 1. Now here's a fascinating passage of scripture. Here, David is listing his arsenal. David is listing his weaponry. He's listing his armed forces. I want to get down to verse 32, but let's begin contextually in verse 23. Look at this. These are the numbers of men armed for battle who came to David at Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him. And the Lord said, the men of Judah carried shield and spear, 6,800 men armed for battle. The men of Simeon, warriors ready for battle, 7,100. And he goes on and he lists his arsenal. And then he comes down to verse 32. He says, the men of Issachar understood the times and season and knew what Israel should do. Part of his arsenal was this, knowing the time that we're living in and knowing what to do as a result of that. So what I want to do in the time that we have, I want to show you three passages of scripture. And I want to show you three passages that show you exactly where we are in history and what we should do as a result of that. Are you with me? All right, go with me to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. <clears throat> there are going to be divine encounters in this room today. Yeah. Judges chapter 2 and verse 7. Now look at this passage. The people served the Lord through the lifetime of Joshua and through the elders who outlived him, who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Now go three verses later, verse 10. After that, a whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor the things he had done for Israel. Now watch this. One generation knew God. The energy, <clears throat> another generation knew about God. We're living in a generation that knows about God that doesn't know him. It's a Judges 2.10 generation. There's no generation can inherit a move of God from another generation. We must begin to see a move of God and produce it in our own generation. All right, so now I want to show you something here. There is a phrase that prolificates itself through the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's kind of the forerunner to relativism. And the idea that's here is that there's another phrase that follows it often in scriptures. And they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Look at this in verse 11. It says, and the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And you see this over and over and over again. It perpetuates and the need for there to be a revival as a result of that. So let me show you an example of this. Go with me to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Here's the story of Gideon. 
Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's the phrase. And for seven years, he gave them into the hand of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive. So if you're being oppressed, you're subjugated to someone else's control. He says <clears throat> they were under oppression. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountains and clefts and caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. Drop down to verse 6. And Midianite was so impoverished, inflation was going on. They couldn't afford to put gas in their chariots. Come on, somebody. They were so impoverished, the Israelites, that they cried out to the Lord for help. Listen to me. That's exactly what needs to take place right now in this moment of time. We need to cry out for help on behalf of a nation. Can I get an amen in this place? Now watch this. Verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. <clears throat> and here's what the prophet said. This is what the Lord God says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hands of all your oppressors. I drove them from the land before you and gave you to their land. I brought you out of oppression, not so that you could be defeated, so that you could live in the victory that I've ordained for you. The United States of America is not going down, ladies and gentlemen. There's about to become a Jesus revolution, a revival that's going to hit this nation. Since I snatched you from the power of Egypt, from the hand of the oppressors, I drove them before you. Verse 10, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in the land that you live, and, <clears throat> but you have not listened to me. In other words, don't be influenced by culture more than you influence culture. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and set me down under the oak at Oprah Winfrey. It might be true. That belonged to Joash the Abizrite. The son of Gideon was on the threshing floor in the wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, listen to me. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. That's like practicing your golf shot in the closet. Come on, how many? It doesn't work. And so what happens is, what is he doing? He's trying to thresh wheat for himself in a place where he cannot be discovered. He's hiding. He's in fear. Now watch this, because here's the epitome of irony. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of war, valor. Now, how about that for irony? You're hiding in a wine press so no one can discover you, and the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Watch his response. Verse 12, but Sir Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Is And by the way, where are all the miracles? If you're really with us, why is this mess going on around us? And by the way, where are all the miracles that we've talked about? <clears throat> but I love God because he doesn't say, well, that's because miracles passed away. He actually gives him two miracles. One is he takes a fleece that's dry and it should be wet. He takes another one that should be wet and makes it dry. He gives him two miracles. Now, we'll get to that just momentarily. But look at this. I want to show this to you. Because here's what happens. So he says, he says, but Sir Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening? Where are the miracles that our father told us about? 
<clears throat> when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of the Midianites. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in strength you have and save Israel out of, the, out of the Midian's hand. I am sending you. Look at me. What was he saying? He was saying the answer for the dilemma that you're in is you. The answer for the dilemma America in is you, believers of the body of Christ. Watch this. But Lord Gideon said, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest of Manasseh. I am the least of my family. And the Lord said, I will be with you and strike them all down and, the, and all the Midianites together. He said, hey, I'm the weakest. I'm nobody special. You might be sitting here this morning. Nobody knows your name in this place. There's nothing distinguishing or special about you, but that's not the key factor. The key factor is God is with you. Now, let me tell you the rest of the story. After he has the two miracles of the fleece, he thinks, well, maybe God is with me, and he amasses 32,000 men to go into battle. But the Lord reduces the troop from 32,000 to 300. He says, you have too many people with you who believe the wrong way. It's not the dramatic numbers that I'm trying to get at here. It's the point. We have too many people who believe the wrong way. Now, listen to me. What that means to you this morning is your job is not to come in and to occupy a chair on Sunday morning. Your job is not to occupy a chair and come two and a half times a month. Your job is to be a part of the army of the living God in the end times to make a difference in the United States of America and the world for the kingdom of God. So, they go into battle. Verse 12 says, the camels, he said, he's, in verse 12, says, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples in chapter 7 had settled in the valley thick as locusts. The camels were so uh, multiple that they counted like the sand of the seashore. In other words, they were fighting a, a force that was so magnificent, you couldn't even count how many there were. And 300 men go into battle against this force. All they've got is lamps. And all they've got is trumpets. They break the lamps as they surround them, and they blow the trumpets. The Midianites look up there, and all they see is all these lamps and all these trumpets sounding. And they think to themselves, there's a mighty force coming down upon us. <clears throat> and it throws them into confusion, and they defeat themselves. I'm here to tell you right now, if the body of Christ will stand, those who believe the right way in this time, the enemy will defeat themselves, and there's victory coming to the United States of America. There is a Jesus revolution about to take place. Now, go with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Let's take a look at the second incident. Ezekiel 37. You get anything out of this? Hang with me. Here's the Valley of Dry Bones. And now some of you say, oh, you can't really use this passage. It just has to do with, with Israel receiving land in David's time. But if you look at verse 24, you'll find that that verse is fulfilled in Luke 133. And it is a messianic scripture. This is not only a passage about Israel. It's a passage about spiritual Israel. And this is a passage about spiritual schizophrenia. <laughs> you say, what's that? Well, schizophrenia is just two personalities. Spiritual schizophrenia is this. I know God can. I just don't know if he will for me. 
that means we have a tendency when that happens to look at our limitations instead of looking at his limitlessness. So watch this. Interesting passage. The hand of the Lord is upon me. He brought me out by the spirit of the Lord, verse 1, and set me in a valley, in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Oh, talk about being me up, Scotty, Star Trek, the next generation, brother. I mean, all of a sudden, he's at one place, and boom, he's in another. How I many you know the, the transporter room in Star Trek is, is the Captain Kangaroo? It's the Sesame Street compared to the spirits. Now watch. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in, a valley, in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were very dry. It was a valley of dry bones. In Semitic languages, dry bones means emaciation, starvation, or leanness. It's like Psalm 106, verse 15. He gave them what they asked for, but sent leanness of soul. In other words, they asked for some things out of immaturity, and it made them less than they were. It is depictive of where we are in the body of Christ. Asking things out of immaturity, and we have suddenly become less than we were created to be. He says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And, he, and I saw, and he led me back and forth among the bones. And he saw a great many bones on the floor, and they were very dry. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? Now get the picture here. He's in one place, transported to another. He's standing in front of these bones, and God comes to him and says, Son of man, can these bones live? How many of you know that had to be an intimidating moment? How many of you, he didn't know whether that were the bones of the prophets who'd already flunked the test, if you understand what I'm saying here. So he's standing there, looking at this. Here's his response, verse 3. Oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. How many of you know not exactly a heralding statement of faith. It is spiritual schizophrenia. I know you can. I just don't know if you will. And I love God because he never responds to the statement you make. He responds to the statement you should have made. <laughs> and he says this, verse 4. And he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says I, to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. This is what God is saying right now to the body of Christ. It's time for us to prophesy to a generation, ladies and gentlemen. We're prophesied to the down and outer, to prophesy to the up and outer, to prophesy to the drug addict, to prophesy to the teenage prostitute, to prophesy to the pandemic, to prophesy to inflation, to prophesy to the economy, to prophesy to gas prices. Prophesy to mass shootings, prophesy to the gender dysphoric, prophesy to the LGBTQ community, prophesy to cultural moorways, prophesy to the hopeless. And brother, if you walk into hopelessness in here in this place, it is subject to a higher course. Now, watch this. It says verse 6. I will attach tendons to you, and I make flesh come upon you, and I will cover you with skin, and I put breath in you, and you will come to life, and then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. This was not a revival of faith. It was a revival of obedience. So I prophesied as I was commanded, 
And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. The bones came to bone together and bone to bone. And I looked and the tendons and flesh appeared upon them and skin appeared upon them, but there was no breath in them. This was happening right now. There's a rattling sound that's taking place across the nation right now. There's a rattling sound right now of revival and reformation that's about to transpire. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Put this word prophesy up on the screen, if you will, please. Look at this. This word prophesy means divinely inspired proclamation, declaring the purposes of God by exhorting and reproving or foretelling. What is our job? He said prophesy to the breath. Breath, the life-giving force of God. We are to prophesy to the breath of God, to enter in. We are to prophesy over our lives. We are to prophesy over our nation in this moment, in this time. I want to tell you why this is so important. Because a nation is at stake right now. And we have to prophesy and foretell into the nation right now in the United States of America. And I want, I want you to understand that what happened is this. There's something about to happen because it's, it's, it's Isaiah chapter 45. And, and he says, concerning the works of my hands, command ye me. Now, he's not trying to tell you to tell God what to do. He's saying concerning the finished work of Jesus Christ, operate in the authority I have given you, and you will see the results that I've ordained. Now, watch. So I said, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come to the four winds, O breathe, O breath, and breathe into the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as I was commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life, and they stood to their feet, a vast army. What is God saying right now in this moment? He is recruiting for an army. And what he's saying, prophesy, because God's about to take a group of people and cause them to stand up out of their seats and become the army of the living God in the time in which we're living. Do you believe that this morning? Turn with me now to Acts chapter 4. I said all of that to bring you to this point. Acts chapter 4. Are you getting something out of this? Watch this. Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven and earth by which men must be saved. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. But it says, when they, the Pharisees, saw the courage and boldness of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. There's nothing distinguishing about them. I know about you that gives me encouragement. He said, but they took note these men had been with Jesus. Nothing special about them. But they'd been with Jesus. In other words, they saw them do something extraordinary. So if you take a look right now, the top 50 movies in the United States of America, most of them are about extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. The Bible is about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. So what was it they did? What was so extraordinary that it captured their attention that they took note they had been with Jesus? Let's go back one chapter. Let's look at chapter 3. Look at this, verse 1. How many of you give me five more minutes? How many give me five? 
5, 10, 15, 20, 25. Okay, we got some time. Watch this. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth, had he ever walked? Crippled from birth. Was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money, and Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something. And Peter said, silver and gold have I not, but that which I have I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Now you have to have something to give something, and what they had was the name of Jesus. Now listen to me. In the name of Jesus is not an addendum to a prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. The name of Jesus means to be connected to and to have the revelation of. He's saying, I'm connected to Jesus, and I have his revelation. Rise up and walk. It is the power of attorney. So when somebody gives you the power of the attorney, they give you the right to use their name. In their absence, whatever their name has access to, you have access and a right to use. Now listen to me. Jesus Christ has left planet Earth, but he's given us his name that we can use everything that his name has access to on his behalf on planet Earth if we'll awaken to the fact of what we have. He takes him. He says, silver and gold have and that which I have I give unto thee in the name of Jesus. And he goes walking and leaping and praising God. The response to it is where I want to take you. Because the Pharisees try to cancel them. The people try to make them gods. Peter goes, no, 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 we're just ordinary folk. And then go down to verse 19. To all this to bring you here. Watch this. He says, repent then. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Christ who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes to restore all things. Now watch this. Six things. Put them up on the screen that comes out of this passage. Number one, he says, repent. Every move of the Spirit begins in repentance. Now, repentance is not primarily feeling bad for what you've done. It's not primarily compunction. It means to change your thinking or to change your mind. Most of us repent enough to be forgiven, but not enough to see the kingdom. When he says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, repent not only to be forgiven, repent to see the kingdom. Now, I've got a list in my book. Do you have that, that PowerPoint on this? Watch. I'm going to give you a list of things that I wrote down that we need to repent of. We need to repent if we've accepted things that violate God's, uh, God's norms as God's absence being normative for our day. We need to repent if we can no longer differentiate between God's way and the world's way. We need to repent if we're rapture Christians and we'd rather escape hardship than to contend for the truth. We need to repent if we want everything to be instant and microwavable and unwilling to pay the price to see a move of God. Next list. We need to repent if we read every verse in the Bible for what it can do for us with very little regard for a hurt and dying world. We need to repent if the church of Jesus Christ, we're more 
to, are likely to change, be changed by society and culture, then we are transforming society and culture. We need to repent if we'd rather hear about the exploits of others than to pay the price to see them for ourselves. We need to repent if we've not won anybody to Jesus Christ lately. Next, We need to repent if we have in difficult times arise. Our only response is, I don't receive it. We need to repent if the supernatural occurs and we remain unmoved and oppressed. We need to repent if the word of the Lord is spoken and there's no change in us. We need to repent if we say one thing and we do another. I wrote the list, and yet there's some things on the list I need to repent for. He said, repent for what reason? And he said, and turn to God. Listen to me. This is a radical turning in Greek. It means a radical turning to his word and to his ways. In crisis times, what this means is you need to think of God and to think like God. In crisis, you lose, I think of you, Lord. That's my first thought. And I think like you according to his word. He says so that your sins may be wiped out. I love this in Greek. Listen to this. It means to erase what is written. The idea is that Satan wrote a prescription for your life and God erased it. Culture wrote a prescription for your life, and God erased it. It says, so times of refreshing. Now listen, I said all that to bring him right here. This term refreshing that is used right here is recovery of breath. This is the breath we're prophesying to. This word means recovery of breath. It means to revive. It means revival. Now watch this so that I may send the Christ. What time are we living in? Before the second coming of Jesus Christ, there is going to be a revival on planet Earth. He said, but he must remain in heaven until the time to come to restore all things. Now listen to me carefully. Every revival is the restoration of the lost revelation. In 1906 at Azusa Street, it was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the 1940s, it was the voice of healing, and he restored healing to us. In the 1960s, it was a charismatic renewal, and he restored to us the gifts of the Holy Spirit, even in denominational churches. In the 1980s, it was word of faith, and he restored faith to us. What he's saying here in this passage is, in this last move of the Spirit, there's going to be a restoration of all things. God's going to put all things on the body of Christ. It's going to be the most powerful move of the Spirit that the world has ever seen. We're sitting on it. Listen to me. It'll be the best of times and the worst of times. But the best of times is going to conquer the worst of times. Now go back into chapter 4. Look at this, verse 13. Here's where we started. He says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, and they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man 
who was healed standing right there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred with one another, what are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows the outstanding miracle that they've done, and there's nothing we can do to deny it. In other words, a miracle settles the issue. It cancels, cancel culture. Let me finish. When I was campus pastor and chaplain at ORU the first year I went, a revival broke out on the campus. We had a volunteer Sunday night service, and that year started out with 100 people. This was my first year there, and we went from 100 to 2,000 in three to four weeks. It exploded. I'll never forget one night I was preaching. I came to the end of my message. And right when I was ready to finish my message, there was a blood-curdling scream that came from the back of the room. The kind where everybody turns around to see what was going on, and you knew your message was finished because everybody was paying attention to it. And what had happened was this. There was a young man who was sitting in the back of the auditorium who was blind in one eye, and that eye popped open, and he saw he was healed by the stripes of Jesus Christ. Miracles, signs, and wonders started breaking out every single week. And we just exploded. We were having 500 students who were coming before services, and we were crammed into the Holy Spirit room, almost shoulder to shoulder. People were seeking the Lord. And I'll never forget one night, we were there, and just as we were finishing prayer, one of my chaplains, Jeff, came to me. And he said, Pastor Ron, he said, would you pray for me? I said, man, Jeff, whatever you need, let's pray, brother. I was so full of faith. And all of a sudden, he said, I've been diagnosed with cancer in my ankle. I need you to pray for me. They say it's metastasizing so quickly that they want to amputate it to me. How many of you know that's not something you play with? I mean, I gathered other people around, and we began to pray diligently for Jeff. He said, Pastor Ron, I'm supposed to go and see the doctor again tomorrow. He said, I'll call you and give you the results. I said, absolutely. The next day, he called. He said, same results. There's cancer in my ankles, metastasizing so quickly, they say they need to amputate the knee. I don't play with the gifts of the Spirit. But I said, I feel like what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to you, if you were to go home and get a second opinion. He got on an airplane, flew home to Florida so he could get a second opinion. Here was Jeff's story. Jeff was a completed Jew. He had accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. His parents were still Jewish who resented the fact that their born-again son had gone into a spirit-filled university that believed in healing, and now he was coming home sick. But of all things, the nurse who attended to Jeff was a spirit-filled, born-again Jewish woman. She shared the gospel in a way that his parents accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then the day that they were to take him to the amputation, they're wheeling him down the aisle. And for some unknown reason, nobody knows to this day, they stopped off for one last set of x-rays. And when they did, they did. They could find no cancer in his body. Healed by the stripes of Jesus.
There's a Jesus revolution coming. You can hear about it. Or you can be a part of it. My question is, what are you going to do with the time in which we're living? The salvation of a nation is at stake. I don't want to be melodramatic. I'm not trying to overstate my case. But I want you to hear the truth. Bow your head and close your eyes, please. Father, I've done the best I can. I feel your presence. I sense it. I ask you to endorse the truth with your presence here in this place. Divinely encounter people, Lord Jesus Christ, as only you can do. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed and nobody's looking around. And maybe you're here to say, Pastor Ron, I need the recovery of breath that you're talking about in my own life. Maybe it's salvation. You've walked into this place today and just like those who were baptized early in this service, you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ. Or maybe you have, but you've drifted from him and you realize you have and you're at the point where you realize, I don't want to miss what God has and it's time to turn your whole life over to him as Savior or Lord. Maybe you walked in here and you're hopeless. I want to tell you something. Your hopelessness is subject to a higher court. You don't have to leave here with it. Maybe, just maybe you're here and, and you need revival, personal revival. Or maybe you want to stand for corporate revival. Maybe when you let, heard that list of repentance, you realized there were some things you needed to repent for and you don't want to remain in your seat. You want to do it openly. Maybe you just need fresh fire. Maybe you need a healing in your body. Maybe you hear you say, I need peace, I need joy. Maybe you hear saying, I'm not willing to remain in my seat any longer. I want to be a part of the army of God. Maybe you're here to recover all things. Maybe you're here and say, I need to step out in boldness. I've been timid and God wants to put that boldness in me. I need to be a true teller. Or maybe just maybe there are habits in your life that need to be broken. There are chains that need to be broken. If one of these things I have mentioned is beginning to talk about you, when I begin to count to three without hesitation, I want you to slip your hands up across this auditorium. Are you ready? One, two, three, wherever you are, yes. And this, yes, every section, hands going up every section. Yes, 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 yes. Hands are going up every section. You can put them down. Now listen to me carefully. Maybe you should have put your hand up, but you didn't. You say, I, I just don't want to be identified with going to the altar. Stop worrying what people think and start worrying about what God thinks. We need to come out of our seats and join the army of God. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. If you didn't raise your hand a moment ago but should have, would you slip your hand up right now wherever you are? Okay, 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 okay. All right, now. If you slipped your hand up a moment ago, I'm going to ask you to take a second step. I'm going to count to three this time, and I want you to stand to your feet. Are you ready? One, two, three. Stand. 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 I'm going to count to three a third time, and when I do this time, what I want you to do is I want you to get out of your seats and come stand down here at the front. Now watch. 
Don't come like little, some little mamsy-pamsy. Come down here like you expect to be encountered by the living God. And the rest of us, we're going to go wild because of the decision you're making for Jesus. Are you ready? One, two, three, come, 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 come. Come on. We're waiting for you at the top of the balcony. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Give them. Keep clapping for them. Come on. 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 We're waiting. Come on. They're still coming. Come on. All the way from the top. We're still waiting for you. Come on down. Come on, press into the front. This whole altar is going to be filled with people. Come on, come on. Come on, keep pressing in. If you have to wake up the aisles, that's okay. Now listen to me, I realize you're here for so many different reasons. Some of you are down here are some of the best Christians in this church. But what you're saying is, I want to be identified with the army of God. Others of you are here because you need a salvation. Some of you are here because there are chains that just need to be broken off your life. And God's about to break them. Lift your hands across this place and lead us. Come on, everybody, singing together. There is power in the name of Jesus. Come on. Recognize it. To break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. There is power, there is power in the name of Jesus. Oh, there is power in the name of Jesus. Oh, there is power in the name of Jesus.
everybody look straight up here for a second. I know you're here for all different kinds of reasons. But when I saw that Satanist come forward last night, I began to realize there's no telling who shows up at an altar. And the first part of business that we need to take care of, if you're here because you're ready to make a decision for Jesus Christ, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Or if you're here saying, I I need to reestablish my relationship with Jesus. It's in a broken state. I want everybody to pray this with me together, but especially those of you that are in that condition. I want you to repeat this with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I receive you anew and afresh in my life. Satan, I renounce you and all of your ways. Jesus, I receive you and all of your ways. From this day forward, I will live for you. All that I have, all that I say, all that I do, it's yours, Lord. It's yours, Lord. If you believe it's the truth, give him a shout in the house. Come on. got a striped shirt on behind her right here okay come stand over here stay no no stay down here stay down here why did you walk down to this altar i thought at first it was just for my family and for the authority he's asked me to walk in but he assured me you don't have to fear being misunderstood okay step back just a bit. Ginger, lift your hands up. God's about to divinely encounter your life. And he wants you to understand that you say, well, I, I, I thought he missed me. I thought he overlooked me. Is that right? Yeah. And, and what he's saying is, not only did I not miss you, I know your name. Every hair in your head is numbered. And he said, I'm about to really encounter you in Jesus' name. Come on, the presence of the Lord is all over this place. Come here, man. Come here. Why did you walk up here? I related with Gideon. All right, I'm going to tell you what God's saying to you right now. He's, He's looking at you right now and you say I've really been all the way in and I've been part of the way in but the Lord says this is the day 
I call you into the army of God in a way. He said, because I've not called you to sit in the back. I've called you to be in the front. I've called you to lead the way. He said, in fact, your hands are supposed to heal the sick. And there's so much of the presence of God. I mean, I could just sense him all over the place. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Come here, man. Why'd you come down to this altar, buddy? Because life is beautiful. Yeah. Life is great. Yeah. When you have Jesus in your life and he lives in you. What do you do? I'm a, I work at the health department. Okay. Well, Jesus says the health department you work for it's not the simply the health department I'm calling you Amen. to. Yes, sir. He's calling you to create health within people in Jesus' name. Yes, sir. And you're so supposed to come out of the shadows and you're to step into the light. But it's not because you desire the light. It's because he wants to put you in the light in Jesus' name. I'm telling you, the presence of God is here. Come on, Lamar, break every chain. Break every chain, break every chain, break every chain, to break every chain, break every chain, break every chain, to break every chain, break every chain, break every chain, to break every chain, break every chain, break every chain, break every power, and there is power. because there were certain chains that seemed to hold you captive. All right, now, if that's you, put your hands up in the air. We're going to break those chains. Listen, some of you have habits and hobbies that you've not been able to break. That comes to an end. Now, not because I prayed. It's got nothing to do with me. This has got all together to do with you submitting to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So, Father, every person right now that has their hand raised, I break the chain in Jesus' name. Power of God, touch, deliver, set free. Break the chains that seek to hold them back. Now, come on, Lamar, break there every chain.
you're here and you say, I came forward because I need a healing in my body. Where are those people? I need a healing in my body. All right, now watch. You see those people with their hand raised? If you're around them, put your hands on them in Jesus' name. Lay your hands on them. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that by his stripes we have been healed in Jesus' name. I release the healing virtue of Calvary in Jesus' name. Set people free. Heal. Deliver. Break bondage. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Name by name, person by person, need by need, in Jesus' mighty name. If you believe that's the will of God, put your hands together and give him a shout. Give him a shout. Give him a shout. Pastor Paul, are you still in here? He stepped out, okay. All right, now, I want to just commission the army of God to be truth tellers and to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this time in which we're living. That's you, put your hands up. I don't care if you're at the front or if you're at the back in your seats. In Jesus, Father, I thank you. I thank you. Lord Jesus, right now, for an army who's being raised up of truth tellers who won't take no for an answer when God has said yes. Let there be fresh fire, fresh anointing in Jesus' name upon the army of the living God. Hallelujah. Brother, this is your army. I commission them to you. I want you to pray over them. Man, how many of y'all received that word this morning? Lord, I just thank you, God, for the word that Ron preached in each service. I thank you that you are raising up an army, God. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, that we are called for such a time as this. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. God, I thank you, Lord, that we are a vast army, just like he preached. Mighty warriors, mighty men and women of God. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk in that courage, that we would walk in that truth, that we would walk in that boldness from the Holy Spirit. God, I thank you, Lord, just for the words he was releasing here at the altar, God, the prophetic words. God, we just received that for each one of us in this room, God. Lord, I pray for healing, God, just for victory. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, that this, uh, as we step into August, as we step into this new school year, God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just do amazing amazing miracles, God, amazing work on the inside of us, God, that we wouldn't even look the same way we came into this year, God, that something different is happening right now, God, that you're changing us, you're making us more like you, you're preparing us, God, for these times of refreshing, God, I thank you in Jesus' name, Lord, that the best days for every person in this room are truly right in front of them, in Jesus' name, amen.